Today's reading is Matthew 25, verses 1 to 30. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Adam. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Nick. I'm one of the elders here at Village. For any of you who don't know me, um, Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. 
Um, hope you've all had a restful and peaceful 10 days or so, whatever that might have looked like in your own homes. Um, I know many of us had the unwanted guest of coronavirus in our homes, which meant sort of quieter Christmases than usual, but hopefully even in that there was opportunity for rest and reflection and just even a bit more slowing down than, than you're normally afforded at this time of year. Um, hands up if any of you have made any New Year's resolutions. Okay, that's... A few, a few. Um, resolutions, um, New Year's resolutions tend to divide opinion. For some of us, they're a total non-runner. And for those of us who love making a good list and setting some goals, there's nothing quite like it. But whether you're into making New Year's resolutions or not, the changing of one season or year into the next is largely inconsequential to us as Christians. There's no biblical narrative that informs our celebrations at New Year, and so there's no real unique significance to it in and of itself. But I think we can and, and, and should still use these moments in our calendar to take stock, to re-examine our hearts, our spiritual health, our posture as followers of Jesus. The beginning of a new year is an ideal time to stop, to look up, and to get our bearings once again. C.H. Spurgeon, when writing about seasons and years changing, noted that for him, as much as these times display the beauty of creation through, through nature and changing of seasons, they're also timely reminders of our unceasing march towards our death. So as we come to the end of one year and begin another, we're all one step closer to dying. Happy New Year, everyone. <laughs> um, we, of course, know this to be true. We just don't often dwell on it. Um, but we see in Ecclesiastes that it's beneficial or it's even essential for the believer to do this from time to time, to think about the realities of our existence. We spent... December looking at, at Advent and celebrating Advent and talked much about how when we look back and enter into the longing of God's covenant people as they waited for their coming Messiah, we too look forward to the return of Jesus. We find ourselves between this already and not yet. As we look briefly at Matthew 25 here this morning, we see Jesus speaking of his return, the consummation of his kingdom, the completion of his kingdom. And what we see Jesus doing here is preparing his followers for life in the last days. He's preparing his disciples for what was then an unforeseen time between his first and second coming. He's already been explaining in, in the previous chapters that this time could be long and will include suffering and trial for his people. But he says that even in that, his people are to be ready for him when he returns. So this morning, we're just going to take each of these parables. We're going to look at what Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom and how this relates to our lives here and now and how it relates to us as we approach a new year and seek to live faithfully waiting for his return. We're going to take one thing from each parable and then look at a few sort of practical considerations that we can think about as we refocus and reorient our hearts and our minds towards him at the start of a new season. So let me pray for us before we begin. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, um, we ask that you would help us. We need your help. Help me, as inadequate as my words are, to speak only, of, only what is of you, God, and what is true and good and edifying to your church and glorifying to you. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts. Give us ears to hear your voice this morning, we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we, we start proper, um, two things I want us to note with these two parables. Um, 
Unlike many of the other parables, these two don't feature among their protagonists or the characters portrayed, those who are outside of the church. So Jesus isn't teaching to an audience here of those who are followers of him and those who are opponents. Um, both of these parables were preached to Jesus' disciples exclusively, or at least those who were professing to be. So the message of this whole chapter is in fact for the church and for all of those who at this stage in history and in this stage of God's kingdom timeline profess to be followers of Jesus. And secondly, with regards to the content of the parables themselves, in each parable we see the character representing Jesus, that's the bridegroom and the master, are both absent. The king is absent from his kingdom. He's away and to return in the future. So here we have two parables presenting an important teaching to the church with the focus very much on the fact that the bridegroom and the master are both absent, but with the sure promise of returning. Both of these characters representing Christ and his absence, at least physically speaking, from his kingdom presently in this time between the already and the not yet that we find ourselves in. But as is the case in these parables, we too live in faith that Christ will one day return for his bride and to his kingdom. So this is Jesus teaching his followers, both then and now, of how in the hope of his return, we are to wait for his return. How we are to live here and now in light of his impending return. So let's take each of the two parables in turn and look very briefly at what's going on. So firstly, in Matthew 25, one to 13, we are to watch for his return. We're gonna see that in the parable of the 10 virgins, we are to keep watch for Christ's return. In this example, Jesus is using the illustration of a traditional Jewish wedding ceremony. And doing so, he's using imagery that would have been really familiar to his audience, albeit less so to us. But as part of that traditional Jewish wedding ceremony, the bride and the wedding party would wait for the bridegroom to appear. And when they would hear his approach was near, they would go out and meet him. And together they would return to the house for the wedding and the feast. The 10 virgins that this parable takes its name from would have been 10 unmarried girls serving as bridesmaids in the wedding party. But as we see, as the story progresses, there's a contrast between these five wise and five foolish bridesmaids. All 10 of them had the same job to do. They had lamps to light the way for the bridegroom, lamps that were supposed to be ready and lit when he arrived. But in verse five, we see one crucial detail. The bridegroom was delayed. The wait was longer than the bridesmaids had first expected. And verse five continues that they all became drowsy and slept. We then see in verse six that there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. The bridegroom is coming, and this was the moment that the bridesmaids were to be prepared for. This was the time for them to do their job. They were to light their lamps and lead him in. Most of you will probably have seen on your social media feeds on the internet, um, pictures from time to time which usually show someone famously or spectacularly messing something up with the caption, you had one job. This was the bridesmaid's one job, and yet we see that the five foolish virgins were unprepared. They had to ask the five others for some oil to light their lamps. And having rightfully declined, the five wise direct the foolish to the local market dealers. And while they were away, we read in verse 10 and 11, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
So the five foolish bridesmaids here were, were otherwise engaged when the bridegroom arrived. And as a result, they found themselves excluded from the very thing they were there for in the first place. Now to understand where the five foolish went wrong, we need to look at Jesus' rebuke and his instruction at the end of the parable in verse 13, where he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I think the implication here is that the five foolish bridesmaids had not been watching for his return. But to understand the watching that this parable is calling us to today, we can't think of watching as simply us standing idle, gawking up to the sky and waiting for Christ's return on the clouds. But rather we need to look at a fuller meaning of watch as in to be watchful or to keep watch, to be cautious over or prepared for the return of the king. The five foolish virgins had taken their lamps, but they'd not taken oil with them. They knew the bridegroom was coming, but they acted as though he wasn't. And this tells us that either one of two things was the case. Either they hadn't taken seriously what they were called to do, their calling to provide light, or they didn't take seriously the bridegroom's promise to return. But either way, they were unprepared. They hadn't kept watch. They weren't ready. And it's the oil in their lamps or, or the lack thereof which shows this lack of preparedness. If they don't have oil for their lamps, they're neglecting the only means by which their lamps can do any good. They were unprepared. Perhaps that lack of preparedness came from a lack of any real or meaningful commitment to their responsibility in the first place. You see, they, they were there and present as bridesmaids at this wedding, and they were each holding a lamp, something which we imagine they had chosen to do. So there's this outward expression or outward evidence of their commitment to the wedding party. But when it came to oil, the very means required for them to do their duty, the symbol of preparedness which required a certain level of commitment in advance for them to go out and obtain, they were found to be lacking. Now we know that oil is often an image used to represent the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We see reference to this in Hebrews chapter 1 and in 1 John 2. So we can see that although their holding of a lamp was an outward expression of commitment, the oil here depicts the inward and spiritual reality of a living faith. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, what are our lamps? What are the lamps that we're holding? What is the outward evidence of our commitment to Christ? Is this our church attendance? Is this the company we keep, the language that we use, things we talk about, things we share and post on social media? None of, these, none of these are bad things, but are these practices or behaviors examples of our own strivings and efforts to create a certain appearance? Or are they the unavoidable overflow of the Holy Spirit at work dwelling in us, molding us, and shaping us into an increasingly greater likeness of Christ? Do we just have the outward appearance of being prepared for his return, or do we carry the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts? We must question our own preparedness because in our fallen, sinful state, our own efforts and strivings will never be enough. We must always keep watch and, keep, and be watchful of the presence of oil in our own lives. I have an old friend, someone I've, I've known since we went to school together, um, and he comes from a family with Christian parents and grew up attending church. Um, and would say, I, I believe what the Bible says, I know what it says, but I'll, I'll sort that God stuff later. I'll, I'll make peace with it later and he still hasn't. This was the foolishness of the five virgins. They thought that the power for their light could be borrowed at the last minute. And while it's easy for us as Christians to say, quite rightly, what a dangerous way to live, even as Christians, that delay, that delay that we see in verse five, the, the, the sort of timeline between Christ's first and second comings, 
sometimes seems to be too long for us to adequately prioritize our spiritual life. See, the drowsiness that fell on the ten bridesmaids represents the circumstances of our life as we wait for Jesus' return. The weight of our earthly responsibilities, our desires, our trials, our temptations. Perhaps the five foolish virgins lack patience. Perhaps their wait was too long or arduous. I wonder, do we feel like our life and our wait for Christ's return is too difficult for us to wholeheartedly follow him? Maybe it's been exposure to pain, hurt, sickness that have dulled our affections for Jesus and our zeal for following him. Or maybe it's been exposure to the things of this world that capture our affections. Maybe it's that higher paying job, that bigger house, that new car, that relationship, any of those things that we know God tells us we don't need in his kingdom. But are there times when we say, I know I don't need that, but for now I like it, so I'm going to prioritize my pursuit of it because, hey, Jesus will be waiting when I'm done. The foolish bridesmaids knew the bridegroom was coming, but they acted as though he wasn't. May we not be found doing this in the church today. May we not find ourselves relying on having Christian-looking lives while our hearts are invested elsewhere. May we keep check of the presence of oil that is, that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and in our church. May we live in the reality of the knowledge that he is returning and let's not be found in pursuit of anything other than him when he does. Let us keep watch, let us be alert, let us be prepared, let us keep check of our lives, that the lamps of our lives would be so filled with oil that they would light the way for him when he returns. And what it looks like to watch, John Piper writes, do you know what watch means? It means go to bed at 10 p.m. instead of 12. That is what it means, because if you don't, You'll be spiritually, spiritually, spiritually sluggish, that's easy for me to say, spiritually sluggish in the morning and the devil will nail you at 10 a.m. Watch means be alert, be vigilant. Do what you've got to do in your ordinary life to stay attuned with the living God and be in his word without falling asleep. Piper continues, how do you, can, how do you be in the word in the morning without falling asleep? Turn the TV off the night before and go to bed. This is a text about living sober, ordinary, duty-performing lives so that when he comes, he will find you so doing. Not just at New Year, but every day of our lives, our resolve should be to watch for Jesus' return. And whether we call them resolutions or not, it can be helpful at any time to set some goals to help us focus, more, help us focus and more intentionally strive towards this. So as we watch for Jesus' return this year, I have two questions that I think it might be helpful for us to consider ourselves in our own time that might help prompt some goal setting or new resolutions in, the, in your life this year. So the first one is, what's one thing you can do this year to increase your enjoyment of God? And the second, what are the biggest distractions or time wasters in your life and how can you redeem that time? So I'm going to leave those questions with you, have a think about those this week, pray about them, talk about them at home in your MCs, and examine what, areas of, what the areas of your life are in which you can be more watchful. Verse 13 reads, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We must watch for his return. Second thing we see in this passage in the second parable, in verses 14 to 30, in the parable of the talents, is we see Jesus teaching us that, that we are to work until his return. 
Jesus has just told us that we'll know neither the day nor the hour, and he's now teaching us that we are to make that wait useful and productive. We're to be productive in the opportunities that he's given us. This is probably one of Jesus' most famous parables, but it's often one of the most misunderstood. And this comes from some confusion around the word talent. So our English word talent, which means a certain ability or aptitude, be it for sports or music or or any number of things, actually comes from this parable. But talent in the original Greek didn't have anything to do with aptitude or ability like our word talent does. Simply, it was just a large unit of measurement. So a talent of money would have been a large amount of money. There's been some dispute among commentators and historians as to how large this amount was, but the exact amount makes no difference to the meaning of the parable. A talent would have brought with it a large amount of responsibility on the servant in possession of it, as we see in the parable. And we can understand the talent in our context to mean any responsibility or opportunity that God gives us to labor in his kingdom on earth. In this parable, Jesus is teaching us about how we handle the responsibilities we've been given in this lifetime, and ultimately how we are to use our God-given abilities to complete our God-given work. So to add a layer onto the first parable, we're not just personally responsible for our watchfulness, but we're also personally responsible for our individual work in the kingdom that God has called us to. So let's look briefly at how the parable unfolds. Jesus begins telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes on a journey. He calls the servants in verse 14 and entrusts them to his property. And in verse 15, we see that he gives to one servant five talents, to another two talents, and to the third one talent, each according to his own ability. So we see this opportunity matched to ability. And once again, the exact amount of money doesn't really matter because even for the the servant receiving one talent, this was still likely a year's year's worth of wages for the average worker and came with it great responsibility. And we see here that the master is asking the servants to work with energy and zeal to capitalize on the money that he has placed with them. And ultimately he returns and wants to see what each servant has done with his money. We see in verse 19 that he was coming back to settle his accounts. He wasn't just coming back to claim the amount that he had left in the first place. There was an expectation on the servants. One by one, he calls them up and each give account of how they've invested the money. The first two men both give account and present the work that they've done. They faithfully set about the work that was left to them and they've produced a 100% return. The master commends them and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over a lot. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The third servant comes to give account. And straight away, we see him on the defensive. Verse 24 reads, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. We see the servant here claiming to be afraid of the master. So he buried the treasure in the ground, and so he says, here's your money. I haven't made anything, but I haven't lost anything. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. In verses 26 and 27, we see the master answering him. And he says, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. This is one of the parables that culturally doesn't require much interpretation for us. The message is is pretty clear. There's work for us to do, and when our master returns, he will have an expectation of the work that we have spent our time waiting for him doing. 
If you're a true follower of Jesus, a servant to use the imagery of the parable, we're to be busy at work, faithfully working and investing that which God has given us. If we love Jesus and we're longing for his return and serving him with all we have, then we will joyfully and energetically set about to do the work of his kingdom as we wait for his return or until we're called home. And what we're talking about here, these responsibilities and obligations, this is where the two parables link. Because these responsibilities and these obligations are the very things described as the drowsiness that fell on the ten virgins in the previous parable. And how we work and approach these things, and just sometimes the very daily grind of life in the delay until Jesus returns, will be what shows those who have persevered and have had hearts genuinely transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. This isn't just referring to our church work or even our vocational jobs. We're to work the opportunities, responsibilities, and obligations that he gives us in all areas of life, and he expects us to provide him with a return on these. Our jobs, our relationships, our church work, anything at all that requires our time, our energy, our resources, and our abilities. Each of the servants had been given a different talent in accordance with their ability, and this too is the case with us. Normally, the work that we will be called to do will correspond with our giftings and abilities. Of course, there's times in life and in Scripture where this isn't the case. We think of David and 1 Samuel, scrawny little David who's tasked with fighting Goliath when there were others who were much more physically equipped to do so. But these cases tend to be exceptions to the rule, and more often than not, we see God granting opportunity and responsibility and these talents in accordance with our God-given ability to fulfill them. 1 Corinthians talks about the body of Christ being made up of many different parts, with each playing its own unique role. And so we can expect to be called to responsibilities and presented with opportunities to do the work of our king that we are uniquely equipped to complete. So we should receive all work with joy and give thanks for it and capitalize on it with all of our energy and effort in the knowledge that it has been uniquely given to us and we have been uniquely equipped to do it. So because all work is from God, whatever we find ourselves doing, we are doing for our king and for our master. And this should change everything. The knowledge that it is our God and our king who will be settling our accounts with. We should work with energy, enthusiasm, thankfulness, and joy because our work has come from his hands. Wonder do we ever say thanks for the work that we have to do? We should, because being made to work and create and cultivate is one of the ways in which we've been made in his image. At the very core of the gospel is the fact that we deserve nothing, and yet in Christ we have been given everything. And in his grace we've received talents that we might work for his glory and our joy until he returns. This is God giving us the opportunity to participate in the building of his kingdom and his work in reconciling all things to himself not only for his glory, but for our joy also. We saw that the talents weren't distributed equally, but neither is there an equal expectation of, of return. In verses 21 and 23, both the diligent servants are commended exactly the same by the master, despite presenting different monetary returns. You see, it wasn't about the return, it was about the work invested. And we are called to the same. We're called to be faithful. And while, yes, our lives as believers must bear fruit, it is God who produces this. 
Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Psalmist also testifies this in Psalm 127 when he writes, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. But let's not take this as a let off from grafting for the kingdom. Of course, we surrender all things to God, laying down our efforts and fears, acknowledging that God is God and we are not. But let's not put the brakes on striving and working when the reality is that the Christian life is grueling at times. Paul compares it to the toil of soldiers, athletes, and farmers. He thinks of running tracks and boxing rings, not a walk in the park. We're called to work out of what God has already worked in us, laboring not for our salvation, but from it. J.I. Packer once put it that the Christian's motto should not be let go and let God, but rather trust God and get going. So as we strive to work faithfully and energetically for his kingdom this year, again, I have two questions for us to consider that might help, help our, 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 our resolve in these areas. So as we work faithfully this year, what single thing can you plan to do this year that will matter most in 10 years or in eternity? And the second one, for whose salvation will you pray most fervently this year? So along with the first two, think about those things as we pray about them, consider them, and think about the areas in your life in which you can resolve to, 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 to watch and to work more faithfully this year. Enthusiastically and faithfully doing the work of the kingdom and earth in every aspect of our lives out of love and obedience for our Savior will be what marks us as true followers of him. This is who the, the five wise virgins proved to be, and this is who the first two servants in this parable were. So may our motto this year be, trust God and get going. <clears throat> so here we've seen Jesus instructing the church on how to wait for his return. We're to watch for his return, and we're to work until his return. We live in an age in which people are preoccupied with security and insurance, and yet few give any thought to their eternal security. To take seriously the biblical instruction of preparing to meet your gods is to the watching world an activity reserved for religious fanatics or weirdos in 2022. But yet the warning here is so stark as we read it in these parables of what awaits those who aren't ready. We see the conclusion of both parables in verse 13 and verse 30. The five foolish virgins are told, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And the lazy servant hears the words and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The ending of the parables never really fits with the rest of the story as we see Jesus sort of step out of the parable and back into spiritual reality. And the same goes here. We must be ready for the day when we too will give accounts of our work. You see, what the lazy servant was lacking was love. Love for his master. He didn't love the master or want to serve him, and so he grew to fear the master. And that failure to love meant that the servant didn't serve. And servants who don't serve aren't servants at all. So if we aren't ready for his return, if we aren't watching for him and working for him out of love for him, then we rightly should fear Christ's return. So we must ask ourselves, are we ready? 
The king has left us and requires us to be vigilant and busy with unwavering loyalty in order to protect the kingdom. The true disciple lives as though Christ is still present. So we ask ourselves, does our life on Monday through to Saturday take into account the invisible God that maybe no one else sees? And if it doesn't, we must recommit to the responsibilities that he calls us to and acknowledge that all of these have come from him and that he requires our all. So do consider these challenges and these questions this morning and this week. Pray about them, but the last thing I want to say this morning is don't look at this passage, don't look at these questions as exercises in performance and instructions in self-improvement. As always, this can never be about what we do or how we try and earn through our actions and our own efforts. We must simply look to Jesus. We must abide with him and in his word and in his presence in all areas of our life because we love him. And as we do that, as we treasure him all the more, we will look forward to his return. And while we wait, we serve him with joy, born out of thankfulness for what he has done for us. And it's then that we experience the reality of the promises of his word, which tell us we have nothing to fear when he returns. When we're abiding with him, when we're abiding in his word and in his presence, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we're to take heart from his return because the Christ who will surely return is the same Christ who has already died for us and paid the price for our souls on that day. So think often this week, this year, how do we want to be found when he returns? Pray that we might be found proclaiming the gospel to the lost, helping the poor or caring for the sick, or that even as the five wise virgins were found, that we might be found asleep, tired after a day spent toiling for his kingdom and getting the rest required to do it all over again the next day. Let's trust God and get going this year, church. May we always be found watching for his return in his word and in his presence and going about his work because we love him. And then one day we'll hear those amazing words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray.